Welcome to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. I'm delighted to say that today my guest is wine expert and broadcaster Joe Fattorini. Known around the world as OB Wine Kenobi, Joe is co-host of the wildly successful The Wine Show, which has 250 million viewers across 107 countries. Joe actually started his career as an academic. Between researching his MPhil on food and religion and teaching structuralist food theory and hotel valuation models, Joe wrote the world's first textbook on selling and marketing wine in restaurants, Managing Wine and Wine Sales, a book still used in universities over 20 years later. Joe has written extensively and broadly on wine. He wrote for the Herald newspaper for 14 years, he's written for all the UK's wine magazines and a range of American lifestyle publications. Never shy of controversy, he once wrote the most complained about article ever published in Decanter magazine. Joe was the wine consultant to the US PGA Golf Tour and he's won numerous accolades, including IWSC Wine Communicator of the Year Award and IWC Personality of the Year. In 2018, Joe was named 22nd in the 100 Most Influential People in Wine by Drinks Retailing News, the highest placed media figure on the list. Today is part one of two of my interview with Joe, covering the BS in wine, and there's plenty of that. Joe is a brilliant guest, warm, insightful, and hugely knowledgeable. If you like wine, if you like BS, you'll love this show. Here we talk about wine symbolism and rituals, anxiety about choosing wine in restaurants, celebrity endorsement, and much more beyond. If you're not a subscriber already, sign up to a load of bs.substack.com for all my podcasts, as well as my weekend BS musings, Sunday BS. And of course, you can follow a load of BS on your favourite podcast provider. Now enjoy the show. Joe, welcome to A Load of BS. It's great to have you along today. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Get to talk BS, which I am. Everybody must do that, Joe, which I love to do, you know, something like that. I can't help but enjoy welcoming my guests and listeners to A Load of BS, but I'm confident that our conversation is going to be mind-stretching and entertaining in equal measure. A lot of behavioural science conversation can be conceptual and aphoristic in nature, often related to decision-making in the workplace and investments. I'm really thrilled today to take the subject into a sphere which, of course, we both love. That's wine and indeed the business of wine. But our own interests aside, I'm confident that this subject matter will resonate hugely with our listeners. And at the very least, it's going to change the way we think when we buy and order wine. Very much so. And actually, this is not the first time wine has been used in this way. And, you know, lots of listeners will have come across things like Veblen's concept of conspicuous consumption. What was fascinating is that the thing he uses to illustrate that, or at least one of them, is collecting wine in his book. And every so often you go through and you find these Roland Barthes, you know, who's talked about the sort of symbolism of various things in mythologies. What does he go and use? He uses the, the sort of the opposition or the dialect between milk and red wine in France. And I'm sure we'll come into this. Wine becomes this quite interesting proxy for lots and lots of thoughts. And you think, actually, I can kind of see how that applies elsewhere. And I think that's partly to do with the nature of wine itself, actually. Quick clarification, just for those who don't know who Torsten Veblen is and what Veblen goods mean, can you just give a very quick explanation? I can, very much so, actually. And I sort of say these things because of 
Veblen good technically, I think the technical definition is something where it becomes more demand increases as the price increases. So unlike most goods where it goes the other way, Veblen goods become, and so we have things like Birkin bags and so on, which fulfill the criteria. He's named after Thorstein Veblen, who was a Norwegian descendant, or his parents are Norwegian, and he settled in the Midwest in the late 19th century in America. And he was a sociologist, I think, but he wrote, actually, it was a sort of parody, really. He wrote a book, The Theory of the Leisure Class, which looked at yes, coastal, East Coast Americans, that slightly Great Gatsby kind of generation, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald sort of people, where there is a very current insight into why. And one of the things he noted was that they, they faced this challenge. They were very wealthy and leisured. They were the leisure class. But as the descendants, fundamentally, of the Plymouth Brethren, and that sort of Weber's work ethic, they couldn't just sit around like European aristocrats and be loose. They had to create almost a career out of their leisure. So they took up an interesting, one of his lines was an interesting, creditable viands and beverages. So they became immense gastronomes, but they really took to wine. And we see an echo of this, I think, today. In Europe, we often talk about wines in terms of tasting notes. We'll often describe wines in tasting notes. There's the famous line from Hugh Johnson, great wine writer, who said he could never score his wines in the same way he couldn't score his friends. In America, wines are all scored. People say, well, that's got 92 points, or I only buy wines that have got over 94, or I bought that at 88, but now it's scoring 92. And this is a speculation, but I see that very much as a sort of Veblen hangover, where I think for a lot of Americans, just loosely enjoying wine and going, well, to be honest, I drink it because I quite like it. And yes, it was hideously expensive, but it was lots of fun. That's too far gone. That's too Dionysian. They have to rein it into this slightly sort of... So it's a bit like looking at the stock market. So when you say to somebody, I've spent... I mean, I remember going to a guy and he'd spent well over a million dollars buying wine. One of his things was it was it was almost like an excuse. He said, but there's nothing here that's under a 92. And that was kind of made it okay because it wasn't just, I've blown a million dollars on stuff that I'm going to get hammered on, which is what actually he was doing. He had this work-related justification for the thing. I think that does come back to Thorstein Veblen. I suspect we, we never imagined we were going to go there, but wine has these fascinating tentacles that go into often other areas. Veblen, normally you talk about it, people just think it's Ferrari. Exactly. Wine does take us down unusual rabbit holes. Now, let's get into this subject with a personal question first, so we get to know you a little. I want to ask you, how did wine become such a pillar in your life? And what do you love about it? Talking about it, drinking it, sharing it? What's the magic for you? There is an element where you'd have to sort of say, you know, what was it that got Tiger Woods into playing golf? I mean, I was a committed enophile, very pompous word. Um, I was a committed wine fan, I think from about seven, not in the sense of drinking it, although, you know, occasionally I would go and drink it. And there is some famous tale of me drinking 1945 Latour that my grandfather had, and then I think probably keeling over when I was about seven. But I remember at school, I mean, one of my treasured possessions at school was a book by Serena Sutcliffe, who was a master of wine. And it was fascinating in the same way, that, you know, sometimes teenage boys get really into the fall. <laughs> or collecting football cards. I was just fascinated about wine. And it wasn't the drinking of it. Here was this thing that opened up lots of other doors. So it opened up doors to, you sort of saw how things had been influenced by the war and so on. There's this astonishing array of permutations 
it required knowing quite a lot of trivia, really. I think there was a piece the other day that said, you know, often more a male characteristic, this swapping of trivia. And so all the great varieties, all the regions, all the rules and the regulations. And I loved all of that. And the fact it was pretty much global. And broadly, it's restricted to quite nice places to go to. Well, think about mostly it goes from southern England to Sicily, roughly. So it's the nice bits of the world where you go get it. I say that there's a vineyard. I'm in Stockholm. There is a vineyard not a mile away from me here. It doesn't make very much that's very good, but you know, there is a vineyard there. So that was where it became fascinating. Now, by the time I went to university, I mean, I had a little sort of drinking circle at school. I remember once being caught by my tutor. It was an army major. I knew I was going to be expelled. So I thought the best way to go out was to go out, you know, in glory by offering him a drink. So he sort of caught us drinking. And I said, well, would he like one? And he turned it down very politely and then just walked away. And years later, I asked him why. And he said, because you were so civilised about it, I couldn't possibly expel you. He said, you were doing exactly what I would be doing about an hour later when I got home to my wife. So at university, I then got into it and, and sort of really fascinating. There is a truth that broadly you join the wine trade because the army turned you down. Or in my case, that was twice you're not clever enough for the law. Well, that was very true in my case. You're not devout enough for the clergy, similarly. So there was a whole series of things and you end up, well, what's the thing that I can actually go and do? And being at some lunch and there were some lovely fellas and I remember at the end of the lunch, they said, oh, you'll do very well in the wine trade. And they were passing something around. I thought it was snuff. And they said, oh no, you don't need this yet. But in a few years, you'll need the gout pills. And I started on gout pills at Christmas. So it does come around in the end. <laughs> there you go. And bringing wine back to the world of regular fans, I want to touch on the subject of wine anxiety. What am I getting at here? Well, wine is thousands of years old. It's mysterious in some ways, yet it's part of our social fabric, and even more so for many in the last 18 months, arguably. And on one level, we're extraordinarily familiar with it. On another level, we're intimidated by it. So what is it about wine that makes many of us often so anxious, unconfident and uncertain when choosing it, gifting it, tasting it and describing it. Let's split this into two parts. And this is where the behavioural science really does sort of kick in. Because yes, wine is very mysterious. It is literally God for more than a billion people around the world. It's 8,000 years old, potentially more, but we know it's at least 8,000 years old. It has all sorts of symbolisms and, you know, we've got Dionysius and these kind of symbols that run right through us. And, you know, Judaism has enormous enormous amounts of symbolism around wine as well. And of course, it's banned by equally the thick end of a billion people who can't drink it at all, probably more than a billion people if you add up various religions. So it's loaded with all this symbolic value. That's complicated enough. Now think of somebody going into a restaurant. Essentially, choosing a bottle of wine is every single behavioural science principle completely overridden. So you have the paradox of choice. You go into a restaurant and you are given an enormous list frequently, often far bigger than you really need to have. The behavioural science insight of Trader Joe's, which is broadly just limit it down to the things that are going to... No, you give people every possible option. You then give them every option of a product category that is incredibly long tail. And in restaurants particularly, you actively want that list to be things that nobody will recognise in the sense that restaurants go out of their way to have nothing that's ever on a high street list. So every Everything is going to be unfamiliar to you. You are to make that choice, a choice which not only has use value, a kind of price 
quality ratio goes with food. I mean, we say, oh, it goes with the food. People that spend their entire lives studying what wine goes with what food, but you do it under extreme time pressure. So a person wants you to make that choice whilst the rest of your table is talking about usually something much more interesting than looking at a wine list, presuming that you will make not only a choice that goes with this very complex array of dishes, and you frequently don't know what everybody's ordered, but also carries these huge social values. So if we go back to Kahneman and Tversky, this is all loss. There is fundamentally no upside. And it's all loss, which is what? Two and a half times more <laughs> influencing than, than the game. You know, the best you will get out of choosing a wine and a restaurant wireless is somebody going, oh, that's nice. The worst you will get is somebody going, God, he went and ordered the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. How embarrassing. Or she only spent 50 quid on a bottle of wine and I thought she'd you know, at least go to the thick end of 100 or did you see the sommelier's face when they made that choice all of these are potential disasters that are going to befall you for the possible benefit that somebody will say they quite enjoyed it and it's utterly impossible so of course we go in and there are sort of various bits you know people say that choosing from a restaurant wine list is one of those top fears you know like public speaking or standing in your school naked or those kind of bits and I think we sometimes how could something that's so effective and every day happen in that way, then you go, well, just a minute, add up all these unseen bits. And apart from anything else, particularly in a restaurant context, or even if you're dying in the home, wine is usually something you share with other people. By sharing it with other people, it comes with a whole series of signalling things. So, you know, I go into a restaurant, I'm potentially trying to sort of romantically influence somebody, financially influence somebody, influence them in some kind of status hierarchy, potentially. I know this is taking a terribly Machiavellian view of people's relationships, but it's kind of true. And um, way with my in-laws, I don't want to embarrass myself in front of them. And wine is this very symbolic product, which we said right at the beginning, is the ultimate vehicle to either succeed or more likely fail horribly and fall flat on your face. My understanding, by the way, of wine list strategy, wine list composition strategy, is that often the cheapest wine on the list is superior to the second cheapest. Yeah, it can be. One of the things is now because we've almost entered into a sort of double bluff situation. So there was always that idea that you went and, you know, people sort of chose the second cheapest largely because it was sort of awkward and embarrassing. And then people sort of, restaurants kind of gained it and done various bits. And then I remember at one point, I once did a restaurant wine list where the most expensive wine on the list was the highest selling because it was the only one that was a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And we knew that that was the highest selling. So then what restaurants did is they looked for what in non-wine terms would be called bar calls, Stella Artois, is it a bar call? something where people know it well. If Guinness this is the classic bar call. So what you do, you would never allow those to sit at the bottom. You'd sit those much further up so that somebody says, well, I do know this, I like Sauvignon Blanc, so I'll jump to that one that's higher up on the list. My sort of key one is um, if it's red, you rarely go wrong with Chianti Classico. It has to have Classico on the end of it. And I know on the TV, Matthew Reese said he's never, ever gone wrong with that. On white, actually, which are much more challenging, the old rule was always go for the Austrian Gruner Veltliner. You'd often find Gruner Veltliner on quite smart lists. That was almost universally the thing that the sommelier bought for themselves. I love Gruner Veltliner, actually. Gruner Veltliner is brilliant with food and songs yeah. would buy it for themselves and they would price it cheap because nobody would ever buy it. And it was always really really good. Now we get lots of Hungarian whites, like Hungarian dry ferment, Perfect. which has a double benefit that it's 
really good with food. It tends to be fantastically good value. But also, you appear to be incredibly impressive that you're choosing a Hungarian white. What? You must be mad. Actually, Hungary doesn't really export bad white wine. So as long as you're a sort of Bayesian like me and you work on the balance of probabilities, you rarely go very wrong by going and choosing a, a Hungarian white. But being in the restaurant is surely one of the moments where the risk of social embarrassment or a faux pas is present. And it seems to be that you know, restaurants do go out of their way to make our lives difficult and confusing. It reminds me of American economist Herbert Simon's theory of satisficing a little, because what, implicitly what you are nudging at, which is, is that perhaps when we choose a wine in a restaurant, what we're really striving for at heart is adequacy rather than perfection. And as therefore, as long as we don't make a fool of ourselves, that's quite satisfying factory, even if I'm not going to choose the greatest thing which may press uh, my, my counterpart. Yeah, the restaurant wine experience is designed by optimizers and essentially used by satisficers, which is why it becomes immensely unsatisfactory. And actually, you could argue that in general, the wine experience, wine retail experience, and in fact, the entire wine world is broadly designed by optimizers for a world of satisficers. In the UK, I mean, if you took monthly wine drinkers, monthly wine drinkers in the United States, more than 70 million, something like that. In the UK, more than 30 million people will go and have wine at some point. You're more likely to find a bottle of wine in a British fridge than a packet of butter, one of my favourite stats. So it is unquestionably, in that context, it's a world of satisfiers. I simply don't believe that there are 33 million people who are madly wine fans who all know the difference between the Cote de Nuit and the Cote de Beaune, for starters. And yet, when you look at the way it is structured, there is a very, very small, but incredibly noisy group and very influential group. And I think actually loss aversion comes into it. I certainly know this in the restaurant world. Lots of restaurants run on relatively, you know, by family restaurants, you know, their individual sites. It only takes one or two people to have a bit of a moan about the restaurant wine lists because they're really into wine and because actually moaning about wine is a bit of a status signal because you know enough that you can moan about it and point out errors. So restaurateurs then sort of go, oh, crumbs, I'd better go and design it around the feedback I've had, this very active feedback I've had from 10 people who didn't really like it and really insisted that it was completely wrong that I went and did X, Y, and Z. That ignores the experience of the thousands of people who just went in and were a bit embarrassed, didn't really know what to choose and went and chose the wrong thing. And I think that's certainly been the case, you know, in an awful lot of wine retail. It's very much the case in wine broadcasting and sort of wine communications. That A weird sort of example, I remember when we made the wine show on, on TV. Now, the wine show got a global audience thick end of 100 million people, let's say. I think our first series, first couple of series got to around 10 million people in the UK. We were desperately crossing our fingers waiting for somebody to complain about it because if none of the sort of usual suspects complained, the danger was that the mass market would go and just not engage with it at all. And I can't remember, I was so delighted when somebody said, well, they sort of watched it they didn't really like it very much. I was like, thank goodness, because if you don't like it, I know that millions of people will, because that's broadly where that sort of world splits. So, I mean, yeah, Herbert Simon and satisficing. And I do, when I talk about restaurants and wellness in general, start on the basis of the satisfier. So let's start on the basis of things like social proof. Let's make sure that we give people a series of, to a greater or lesser degree, less cynical forms of social proof. One of the problems wine has is that we end up going into really raw, vulgar social proofs very often, rather than finding more subtle, interesting ways of helping satisfiers. Now, beyond the emotional strains that we're discussing, I mean, wine is made 
mainly a hugely pleasurable experience. And it can be a very ritualistic one as well, whether one's at home or indeed in a restaurant. For example, popping the cork, at least for me, signals something very celebratory or it could just be the end of the working day. But actually, these small rituals are far more meaningful than we might imagine. Can you unpack the BS behind this. Yeah, I can. I can unpack it in two ways as well. One of the things that I think a lot of people come into behavioural science and one of the things that initially attracts you are often slightly pop psychology experiments. Somebody's gone and done an experiment. It's funny, I listened to Rory, Rory Sutherland on, you know, talking to him. He was talking about this. Sometimes that gets knocked because people say, oh, well, you know, it's got a p-value of greater than 0.04. I kind of don't care, actually. I'm with Rory on this one. If it's got a p-value of 2, then I'm absolutely fine. But a lot of these little experiments, we've done them in wine, they come up with, you shouldn't be too precise, but they come up with interesting indicative direction of travel results. The popping of a cork on its own, with no other confounders, on the whole, people value, they ascribe a value to that wine about 15% higher than if they hear the sound of a screw cap crunching, which is an interesting insight. Now, I'm sure that there may be certain replicability issues around that, but that draws people in. So I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by things like, you know, the value that gets ascribed, I don't know what the number is, when people decant a bottle of wine. We certainly know that going and using larger glasses has an impact. Now, there's a very utilitarian, kind of functionalist streak, actually largely amongst the optimizers in the wine world, which goes, let me go and find the scientific reason why that might be the case. Yes, undoubtedly, decanting a bottle of wine, it aerates it. I'm sure that over time you can go and find interesting things where there are more aromatics in the glass. Larger glasses on the whole allow the aromas to open up more and so you can smell it. Mostly, it's really nice decanting a bottle of wine because you have a bit of ritual around it. It makes it feel special. It's exactly the same reason why we don't go to a smart restaurant wearing tracksuit bottoms. And then we have a large glass that makes it feel nice. We have the popping of a cork rather than the crunch of a screw cap. You could go and tot all those up mathematically and you'd end up with a nonsense. Actually, if you tot them up, we know that objectively that is increasing the value we ascribe to this. It makes it feel more important. We enjoy it more because of that. So I'm a great fan of that. Now, if we take it from those individual little experiments and we bring it into a slightly broader context, you know, you can come away with certain principles. I loathe the phrase, I'm here to demystify the world of wine. Why? Why on earth would you want to do such a thing when the rest of the world of commercial goods is insanely trying to mystify their products, is trying to add some, not mystery, but certainly mystique, is trying to add value to it in that sense. Why on earth would you take one of the most naturally multi-layered products in the world and say, yeah, let's strip it all out? If that was true, James Bond would drink Chilean Merlot, you know, from... Asda. I'm not saying Asda's chili mellow is bad. It's very good wine. But James Bond doesn't drink that. He drinks Mouton 45 or whatever it would be, Tattinger, Dom Perignon, who were fundamentally bought the thing later on. But if he would drink that, he would go and have Carver because he has the mystique and the mystery and all of the sort of bits that come with it. And we can have that in a small little way. It's my birthday this weekend. I know exactly what I'm drinking. I know exactly which glass I'm drinking it from. It actually comes in a screw cap, weirdly, which is the only disappointment. But I shall decant it. I'll make 
a big song and dance about it. And what are you going to be drinking? It's actually a wine, Farvey Estate Grenache, uh, made by a, a guy, Matt Swinney. A little bit like how you sort of signal your status by stepping outside the standard signals. So I'm now stepping outside of Bordeaux and Burgundy and going to an Australian Grenache, which is, of course, now for those of us who've moved on from just being into Bordeaux, is the big thing from a totally new producer. But it's won every award. It's probably the best. It's certainly one of the modern icons of Australian wine. If you can get it, they only make about 100 cases, which again, it's not very much of it. So there's rarity value that comes into it and all those things. I'm, I'm not immune from saying I am completely led by the nose of behavioural science in my choices. Now, we've talked about satisficing, we've talked about rituals. I also want to understand if it's possible to disentangle this, what actually makes a successful wine. Now, the enjoyment of wine, I think it's subjective, but nevertheless, plenty of mediocre, even in inverted commas, bad wines become hugely successful. And if we accept that production values are not the sole criteria, what do you think makes a wine successful? And if before you answer that, if I may throw in a quick part B to that question, what's the impact of celebrity endorsement in wine? So perhaps there's a slight leading question here. It's a very good question because actually, whilst we sometimes think of celebrity endorsement as being a very modern thing, it has an extremely long and, you know, kind of rich history. There are people who would go and mock celebrity endorsement now and say, oh, it's ridiculous that Post Malone has a Provencal Rosé or Brad Pitt, who also has a Provencal Rosé, you know, there's endless numbers of people. And yet, we'll go and say how important German Riesling is to them. The big boost to German Riesling's fortunes was Queen Victoria going to Germany and saying how much she enjoyed the Riesling there. She was a wine influencer every bit as much as Kim Kardashian, any sort of modern people. So whilst Kylie Minogue, these are real impacts, Kylie Minogue and Queen Victoria, who'd have thought that they are in the wine world fundamentally performing exactly the same role. Yet they do. I used to work at Berry Brothers and Rudd in London. If you took a wine list or a sort of price list from them around the turn of the century, late part of the 19th century, German wines, certainly from particular vineyards, are by some margin, like 20 or 30%, the most expensive wines on that list. They certainly aren't today. They are considerably more expensive than first growth Bordeaux. And Bordeaux was pretty expensive because you'd had people like Thomas Jefferson, actually before him, John Adam, who'd gone and were big fans of Red Bordeaux, plus regal people. Now, come to today, the biggest selling premium rosé in Tesco is Kylie Minogue's. A runaway huge success story. Who knows, when Kylie Minogue is not very fashionable, there'll be people, people sort of saying, well, crikey, look at the ridiculous people used to pay for that, that product. Well, look at the ridiculous prices people used to pay for German Riesling. We now think of it as being actually pretty good value fine wine, but it was hugely inflated by Queen Victoria. So the things that go into success of Wine. At every stage in the process, you'll actually find different people who will claim it. I remember once saying something about that all French vignerons are physiocrats because they believe that all value lies in the land. Then you, you move through all wine merchants as sort of capitalists. <laughs> all wine makers, that was it, were Marxists because they believe it's the sort of labour theory that makes it. So they'll all tell you how many hours they spent making the wine and cost of the barrels. All merchants are all then capitalists because they'll all sort of tell you, well, it's very important that they don't pay you very much for this year because they paid you too much for last year and they sort of the value of the capital invested over a period of time. All sommeliers ultimately are Austrian school economists because they 
they sort of know that if they make a big fuss and nonsense about it, you'll value it more. When it comes down to individual products, certainly we get somewhere we see elements of each part of that kind of value chain. So certainly pudding wine is very expensive because we get told how terribly difficult it is to go and harvest them. There are certain pieces of land that make incredibly expensive wines because of the rarity value of that land. And actually, that rarity value almost creates the physiocratic dream, you know, it's, it's very expensive. Some of the more interesting cases, I think modern wines, if we look at two of the most successful wines in the wine world today, wine people will look at this and go, this is disgraceful. They are bad wines in that sense that you can buy the same stuff in the bottle for much less. If you took at 19 Crimes and The Prisoner, I mean, the Prisoner's huge brand in the United States was sold for an awful lot of money a couple of years ago. What's really interesting to me about the two of them was that they are built around the audience. And now we've sort of seen for the first time people actually going and saying, well, let's go and create wines based around what the audience wants to go and make. Interestingly, both of them sell very strongly with a market that had been forgotten, which is largely young men. And I remember pointing out to somebody, I said, have you not noticed it's in the name? Young men are anti-authoritarian. They want to rebel. The Prisoner, 19 Crimes, they're both that sort of anti-authoritarian thing. 19 Crimes, I think, is a particular thing. I mean, I've asked the team behind it if this was true, and they all claim it wasn't. I think that it's there are 19 crimes because it's important there are 19 of them. If it was three crimes, our anchoring would mean that a £10 bottle of wine would seem very expensive. If there are 19 crimes, we're anchored to the number 19. So by the time we come to the till and it's 9.99, it doesn't seem nearly so expensive. That matters. They are crimes. So it's one of the very few wines, both of them are the very few wines which aren't named after where it came from, what it was made of, how they made it or who made it or the person to whom it is a proxy named product. If you like. I mean, presumably this is... Um, classic and it's anti-establishment marketing yeah completely and it sells phenomenally well they did once give me a very interesting insight it was treasury who, who came up with it and i was asking i'm not sure if they would want me to know this now they said one of the things they found it's one of these virtual reality labels so you you hold your mobile phone up with an app and the label talks to you Lots of people thought that was the point of the label. Of course, that wasn't the point of the label. It's because the amazing data you get from watching people on their phones going and scan, you know, when do they do it? What do we know about the people who went and did that? And one of the things they found, this bizarre correlation, apparently there are big spikes around Christmas. They were able to find that there are big spikes around the mobile phone user's birthday. So frequently this was being given to people as a birthday present. And they correlated this with some fascinating data because they discovered, I think it was through Dunhumby, that lots of the people who buying the products were middle-aged women. And they were like, why are all these middle-aged women buying this wine named after crimes targeted at 20-something-year-old men? Of course, then they made the connection that it was mums buying this product for their sons because they didn't know what to go, what do you buy? You know, I'm a 52-year-old woman. What on earth do I go and buy my son who's 23? Oh, there's this bottle of wine. He'll quite like that. Turns out they did. So, of course, then they used that insight to start marketing the product quite heavily. So they suddenly steered away from, you know, they would target things like uh, music Awards. I remember going to a music awards with them actually around it. They would then suddenly start saying, no, actually what we're going to go and do is turn a certain amount of our media budget towards exactly that kind of thing, mum's net, because they're the people who are often buying the product and getting their sons into it. Interesting. I mean, endorsement and labeling then leads me to the subject of broadly associations and stereotypes in drink. My question is something I've thought about for a while. Why do you think it is that certain drinks become so strongly associated with certain groups of people? So for example, you'd say beer is a man's drink and wine, particularly white wine, is a female drink. Do men and women have different palates or are there historical social reasons for that? We have diverse palates. So I think the broader truth is that across all men and women, 
in general, we have more diverse palates. There is an interesting thing that we certainly seems to be the case that women often seem to have a more attuned palate. They're able to detect things more precisely. And that becomes particularly acute during pregnancy. And I remember Helen McGinn, who um, knackered Mother's Wine Club, brilliant, great friend, but also a brilliant writer. She recruited a panel of pregnant women when she was pregnant at Tesco because she found they were able to go and detect wine faults much more accurately than the general population. Now, that certainly seemed to be a physiological effect. However, whether or not this is something that is more generally true in the population, I'm not sure, because I know that certainly whiskey distillery, I think it was Glen Goyne did an experiment where they wanted to pick out super tasters amongst their staff who had the palates. And I think it's a bit of an afterthought, they invited the cleaning ladies along, who scored massively higher than everybody else in their ability to pick apart and name by identification different aromatic compounds. Now, the hypothesis was if you are a cleaning person, you know, cleaning lady, cleaning woman, actually your job rests on going, that smells weird. I'm going to go and identify what that thing is and go and clean it up because your success or failure is based around your ability or the learned ability to go and identify these things. And of course, you're dealing with lots of very smelly products all the time. You live in a world of aromas. So whether or not there is something, you know, some sort of social conditioning that by the time we get to drinking age, women are more effective at going, I don't know. But it's certainly the case that women on the whole make better tasters than men, but it's not universal. And some men are amazing tasters. I mean, Natasha Hughes, a lovely master of wine. We did the MW course. She passed, I didn't. I remember she said to me, she said, no, you're a ninja taster, Joe. You blew us all out of the water. So I think I'm kind of good. You know, I'm not bad at smelling and I'm bloke so it's not generally sort of case. So I think it's dangerous to say, oh, well, women drink this and men drink that because actually they have different palates. You know, I think that's not the case. Often what does split us is I think that we have texture is more important sometimes in preference than aromatics. And we certainly know, and I've done some research on this recently, if you want to engage an audience, describe the texture of the wine before you describe the flavour. People are much more driven. And this was certainly the case of some research years ago where it was what wine words make you want to buy on trade restaurant setting, texture words all the time. Soft, silky, fresh, rich. Those are the things that people are attracted to. But again, we have lots of confounders. This is one of those fascinating parts about behavioural science, because there is a temptation to go, oh, it turns out that texture matters more to people. Does it really? Or is it that texture words can almost universally be applied to people? We can anthropomorphise the wine by texture, nobody would ever say, well, he's blackcurranty, but they would say he's rich or he's supple or she's fresh. Or you know, There are words that we would use in the context of humans. Now, on a subconscious level, now, I haven't, there's a difference between correlation and causation. I know that it correlates that if I want people to go and buy wine, use texture words, don't use flavour words. I don't know if that's the causal relationship. I suspect it'd be quite hard to go and really unpick it because there's so many other confounders, but that certainly seems to be the case. So certainly, if you're wanting to pick people apart, actually finding out how the wine feels to them. Do you like full-bodied, light-bodied wines? That really matters to people. Citrus versus apple actually doesn't bother people that much. Although people will often claim that, you know, I really like you know, some nice citrus. And then people feel it's very important to come up with sort of citrus terms. We do know there are broader categories. I think certainly we have learned behaviours, essentially, in wine. I think slightly crusty old men learn to like stringy old claret because they feel that they ought to. We certainly, the case in the West, have learned to like dry wines far more than our natural preferences would suggest. You go to other parts of the world and you actually really dig down. You know, one of the great, I'd say great, one of the big movements in the world of wine has been subtly sweetening them up. An awful lot of very successful wines have almost 
pudding wine levels of sweetness to them, you know, 20 grams a litre of sugar. Dry wine is fundamentally under three, and they will be described as dry wines. Actually, they've got all sorts of things in them that make them quite sweet, because it turns out people are sweet. Russians are much more honest drinkers than we are. They just like it really sticky and sweet. And in fact, if we go back to... Jane Austen, you know, 19th century, 18th, 19th century, yeah, people drank sweet, much sweeter wines than we drink now because they were probably much more honest about their palate. That's the end of part one with Joe. If you enjoyed today, please share it on Twitter or with a friend. Part two will be published on Thursday, 7th of October, so look out for that. Otherwise, until next time.